This sermon, Peter, Pastors, and Barbecue, a special Sunday in the life of Sovereign Grace Church, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, May 15th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. I have one prayer this morning that you will be able to endure this sermon, not too distracted by the smell and the anticipation of great barbecue. Uh, so I think you're going to need the spirit for that. Yeah. But today is, as you already heard uh, a little bit, today is a special Sunday in the life of our church. We have the privilege of ordaining Tom Wilkins as a pastor at Sovereign Grace Church. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, ordination, uh, it simply means that this morning we are publicly setting Tom apart. We are appointing him as a pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, we'll see in the coming weeks, but, but uh, Acts talks about this idea of ordination in Acts 13 when they said, uh, Luke writes, they set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Later on in the next chapter, Luke writes, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, you could just translate that ordained. And that's what we're doing this morning. We believe as pastors, we believe as a church that God has set Tom apart to be a pastor at Sovereign Grace Church. So we're making that official this morning by appointing Tom to the office of pastor. And immediately, Tom, what that means is that uh, we will no longer be paying you with monopoly money. It, it'll be real because you'll be legit. If you know Tom, you know he's, he's always been legit as a pastor, hasn't he? Tom has a pastor's heart. It's one reason why we're so grateful to be able to do this today. But, but as we begin this ordination service, as we do with everything around here, we begin with the scriptures. I want us to understand what God thinks about pastors, how God views the pastor and his role in the church. And I can think of no better text for that than 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. So would you stand with me? Let's read that together. We will pray and dig in. This is Peter writing to five churches spread throughout what we know as modern-day Turkey. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Maybe seated. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you that you are here. Your presence resides in your people. And when your people gather, your presence is here in a unique way. I ask that you would use these words written 2,000 years ago to encourage our souls, to enlarge our thoughts about you and your ways and your church, and that you would use them to draw us to Christ, even as was prayed earlier, that you would remind us that as your people, indeed, we have peace with you. Father, help me. You know my heart. You know my weaknesses. Lord, I need your spirit this morning to speak. And so would you fill me freshly for the task of preaching. And may you be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. John Stott said, the best sermons we ever preach to others are those we have preached to ourselves first. He's a pastor writing to pastors. And his true words here are uniquely true this morning. If you are unfamiliar with the letter of First Peter, Peter has been equipping and exhorting five beleaguered churches. He have, has been uh, encouraging them to suffer for their faith, to endure religious persecution, and in it all, to love and serve one another in very difficult circumstances. And all of this, all of this because of the suffering of Christ and for the sake of Christ. That's the first four chapters. And then we get to chapter five where we are this morning. And Peter suddenly singles out the pastors of these five churches. It's as if he turns his attention away from the congregations and, and makes eye contact, if he could, if they were there with him, he threw his pen, he makes eye contact with the pastors. This passage preaches to pastors. These four verses in First Peter have enormous implications for pastors. But what it powerfully preaches to pastors has tremendous implications and applications for you, the congregation. Because in focusing on the pastors, Peter is actually equipping the churches. And as he charges the pastors and equips the churches, we learn a few truths about the pastor that every pastor and every church member by the grace of God, must embrace with joy and faith for the sake of a healthy, God-exalting church. And I am so grateful that we have been to this text before, and as a pastor in this church, I know that 
This is a church that makes it, quoting from Hebrews 13, a joy for your pastors to be pastors. So thank you. Three things that we're going to see from this text this morning. A pastor's charge, a pastor's heart, and a pastor's motivation. Let's begin with a pastor's charge. Notice back in verse 1 again with me. He says, so I exhort the leaders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter, you know this, Peter was an apostle and a a unique calling uh, and role in redemptive history. We don't believe that there are modern-day apostles. But Peter was also a pastor here Peter is a pastor charging a pastor. You notice that he says, uh, he says that he calls himself a fellow elder. And before we get to the charge, I want you to notice something, because I think there could be confusion in the church today, but notice Peter uses that term in verse 1, elder. Elder. I think there can be a lot of confusion on exactly how we view elders and pastors and overseers. Uh, Alexander Strzok wrote an outstanding book on uh, the office of pastor, and he does a good job of addressing the confusion that he's concerned about in the church today uh, by using this illustration of Eddie the elder and Pete the pastor. So you have Eddie the elder who sits on an elder board, a respected man in the church, probably really good with business, and he, he is a group with another group of men, and, and they govern. They kind of keep the pastor in line, in a sense. Uh, they, they, they really hold, in a lot of ways, the pastor accountable, Eddie the elder. And then in the church, there's Pete the pastor. Now, Pete is the guy, he's the guy who preaches. He's the guy who makes the house visits. He's the guy who who shepherds and cares for the people in their sufferings and struggles. And so you have Eddie the elder and you have Pete the pastor. And Pete the pastor is really kind of subject to Eddie elder in, in a lot of different ways. But what you have is sometimes you might have some Pete the pastors on the Eddie the elder board. But but not every elder is a pastor, and not every pastor is an elder. And so maybe not theologically, but methodologically, functionally, what, what, what you end up with is these two separate offices governing the church. As Alexander Strzok says, but the problem is the New Testament doesn't make that distinction. The New Testament uses the term pastor, or here in our text this morning, elder, and even overseer in 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications of an elder, the New Testament uses these terms in an interchangeable way. It's three terms, one office, same man. We see this, the, inter, the interchangeable nature of these terms in places like Titus 1. You can write these down and study them later. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Acts 20, Philippians 1, Ephesians 4. And right here in our text in 1 Peter 4. Again, look back at verse 1 with me. Peter uses that term elders in verse 1. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, shepherd the flock. 
That verb shepherd, that's the verb form of the noun for pastor in Ephesians 4.11. In essence, Peter is saying, be a pastor, elders. Be a pastor. And then in verse 2, after that, he follows that up. Peter says the elders are to exercise oversight. Again, there's a verb there, but that verb oversight, it's, it's the verb form of the noun overseer used in 1 Timothy 3.1. If anyone aspires to be the office, or if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, in the place of qualifications for a man called to be an elder or a pastor, that term isn't even used. The term overseer is used. And so in effect, Peter here is saying, elders, be pastors, be overseers, elder, pastor, overseers, three terms One office, same man, not two distinct offices. That's true. Pastors may have different gifts that lead to differing responsibilities. You see that on the pastoral team here. Some pastors may serve full-time while some function bivocationally. Tim is a bivocational pastor. He doesn't function in the same way that Tom and I do. But there is one office, equal in authority, subject to the same qualifications, according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, and called, according to Hebrews 13, the same accountability to God. The point, a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, an overseer is is an elder and, and a pastor. So now, as a fellow pastor, Peter prepares pastors for their charge here, reminding them before the main reminding them of the main thing they must keep before themselves in the churches. If you go, well, pastor, I thought the point was a pastor's charge. We're getting there. We're, we're taking a little bit to get there because Peter takes a little bit to get there. So With clarity to the term elder, now notice what Peter does. He doesn't just charge them, but he reminds them what must be at the center of their charge. Notice in verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witnesses of the suffering Christ. He goes on to talk about how he is a partaker in the suffering of Christ. He reminds them the sufferings of Christ. It's Christ's sufferings that saved them, that saved Peter and paved the way for his gospel ministry, that paved the way for the pastors in these these scattered churches for their gospel ministry. Peter reminds them that what that suffering leads to, again, the end of verse one, participation in glory that will be revealed when their suffering Savior returns. In other words, Peter's reminding pastors, as with Christ's suffering, their suffering is not in vain. It's all going somewhere. It's part of God's plan. So do you see what what Peter is doing? He prepares these pastors for their charge by pointing them back to the cross and pointing them forward to eternal glory. It's easy to gloss over this, but I don't don't want us to. Scripture teaches us that the key to the Christian life 
is keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on that which he accomplished for us at the cross and keeping our eyes on a Savior who said, I am coming soon. And that begins with pastors in their own life and in their pastoring. A pastor only has one message to proclaim ultimately, one song to sing, one motivating force that gets him out of bed in the morning, and that is Jesus Christ, a crucified and risen and returning Savior. Listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I agree with that prayer earlier that somehow, in some way, whether it was the singing or the preached word or out there fellowshipping with somebody that you're about to meet, that God would bring you miraculous into an understanding that you can be it, that you're not at peace with him, but you can be through Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, as a pastor, I can be sympathetic to your place in life. As a pastor, I can hear you and be a sounding board for your difficult questions about God and, and evil and why the world is the way it is. As a pastor, I can come alongside of you and, and make you feel like you're part of this family. But I can do nothing. I can do nothing to give you peace with God. I have one song to sing to you, one one message to proclaim to you that will give you peace with God, and that is Jesus Christ. He lived for your righteousness that satisfies a holy God. He took, he took your sins upon his shoulders as if they were his own. He made them his own indeed. And then endured the wrath of God for that punishment. So that all who have faith in him, all that who believe in him could be justified before him. A fancy word for have peace with him. Be right before him. To be looked upon by God himself just as if you had never sinned. That's all. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, you realize you've been here for less than an hour and twice you've heard the call. Come to Jesus, once through prayer and now through preaching. You, you, don't, you don't have to gear yourself up. You can, you, you can take a bite of barbecue at one moment and profess Christ the next. Because it's not about how you did it. It's not about when you did it. It's about believing in the one who did it for you. Now we're getting to the charge. Ready? <laughs> Here's the charge. Here's the Christ-motivated charge. Look at verse 2. Peter writes to the pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There it is. 
been waiting for 10 minutes for it. There you go. You know, when we read this at first, it may seem like there are two separate charges here, right? Shepherd the flock of God, exercise oversight, but, but there's only one. Shepherding and exercising oversight are two different ways of describing the pastoral role. Peter is just emphasizing the shepherding that the pastors are called to. Alexander Strzok says, explains it this way. He says, shepherding is the figurative expression for governance, while oversight is the literal term. So the call, the charge here is to shepherd the flock of God. And let's just take a moment and consider the rich imagery of shepherding and how it helps us to understand this charge. Pastors are called to feed the flock. As a shepherd feeds his sheep from green pastures, pastors are called to skillfully feed the church with the preaching and teaching and counseling of God's word as we see in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Shepherding includes caring. As a shepherd cares for the very real needs of the flock, pastors are called to lovingly and tenderly care for the people in their practical and spiritual needs. Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. Pastors don't just feed and care. Pastors are called, part of shepherding is to protect. A shepherd protects. A shepherd risks his life, in fact. I'd encourage you to do a, do a, do a study on shepherding. It's still a vocation in many places in the Middle East. It's fascinating. I got a great book on it if you want, if you want to read it. A pastor spent a year in the Middle East with real shepherds. And then came back and wrote a book on biblical shepherding. It's fascinating. It's amazing. It's a gift. But just as a shepherd risks his life to protect the sheep from wild animals and bandits, pastors are called to be spiritually alert, courageous, protecting the church from false doctrine and wolves in sheep clothing not concerned about their own well-being or their own reputation, protecting truth. I'm sorry, that's Acts 20, 28 through 30. Caring is Hebrews 13, 13, 17. So a pastor feeds and cares, protects all of this aspects of shepherding. But you know what else a pastor's called to do? Lead. As a shepherd leads the sheep to fresh water, green pastures, and cool shade so that they can rest in the heat of the day. So pastors are called to strategically lead through administration and decision-making, Acts 6, 1 through 6. Pastors are called to lead by identifying and equipping new leaders, 1 Timothy 2, 2. Pastors are called to equip people for ministry. Pastors are not called to do everything. Pastors are called to equip you to do the work 
of the church, the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. All of that for the purpose of a healthy church. These are, when Peter says shepherding, these are the sacred tasks of shepherding. These These are the sacred tasks of being a shepherd. Feeding, caring, protecting, and leading. And I just, I just want to say this. If you've been around here long enough, you know your pastors don't do this perfectly. But listen, what I do want you to know is your pastors do these things. Cute, hold on for a minute. This thing is driving me nuts. A pastor shepherds acutely aware of his own weakness. A pastor shepherds, he feeds and protects, aware of his own sin, aware of his own doubts. Excuse me. Aware of his own unbelief. pastor shepherds with his disappointments right there, his discouragements right there. A pastor shepherds with a voice that always seems to be right here, and it's the words of Satan himself. How are you, pastor? And through it all, the man called by God to shepherd the flock among them must, by the grace and power of God, continue to shepherd you in love and joy and faith. Why do I share that with you? Because I think one way that you can apply this, one implication this text has for you, though it speaks to pastors, is that one, be charitable with your thoughts and words towards your pastors. And I thank God that you are. There are plenty of people who aren't. So long as your pastors are following Christ, follow them joy and faith and zeal. But above all, and if you can't handle three, you just want to pick one, here it is. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors. As imperfect men, called by God himself and accountable to God on that day of judgment for how they pastored you. That's a pastor's charge. Second, a pastor's heart. A pastor's heart. I've already, we all know the pastors are sinners, especially this pastor. You're very aware of that if you spend any time with me. Pastors, I think, are particularly prone to pride. 
Anytime, a, anytime somebody is up front, there is a unique proneness to pride. Leading can be difficult, especially when times are trying. And in his charge, a pastor will either reflect the love of Christ to the people he serves or he will distort the love of Christ to the people he serves. Peter knows this from personal experience. He's a pastor. So as he exhorts pastors to a heart of humility, or or so what he does is he exhorts pastors to a heart of humility not with, with three, not this, but that. Shepherd the flock of God among you, not this way, but this way. And they all get to the pastor's heart. Notice in verse two, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. And then notice what he says. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. In other words, pastors can't be Reluctant, kind of half-hearted, indifferent men serving out of obligation or under pressure because no one else will do it. A pastor is called to sacrifice himself to the will of God, the gospel of Christ, and the mission of the church because he's convinced that God has called him to that. Not because somebody's got to step up and do it. That pastor will be crushed, and the congregation will be harmed. So he says, pastors, Tom, Tim, Derek, shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but but with all your heart and the power of God, the grace of Christ. The authority of the word. The pastor's heart must be given over to pastoring for the good of the people and the glory of God. Second notice what he says. He says, shepherd the flock among you. And then he addresses the heart. Not for shameful gain, but what? Eagerly. Eagerly. Great book Piper wrote, I love that pastors aren't professionals. Indeed, he is right. We are servants. To be a pastor is to be a servant of Christ and his church. And when money, and money is the idea behind the phrase shameful gain here. It means more but it means that in particular. That's what Peter has in mind. When money becomes the motive, ministry becomes shameful. Should pastors be, be paid? I believe absolutely, according to 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. If there's any way pastor can be paid, the church should pay the pastor. But But money can never become the motive of the pastor. Because when money becomes the motive, the ministry becomes shameful. Because God is pushed to the side. And the people just become tools to be used. 
temptations to partiality begin to hinder the gospel mission. Temptations to partiality can revile the word of God and ultimately slander the name of Christ and harm the testimony of his beautiful church. Like I said, we shouldn't limit what Peter is saying here. Shameful gain, he has money in mind, but we shouldn't limit this to money. Put what you want in there, reputation, influence, opportunity. Whatever the gain, Peter says a pastor is to serve eagerly. In other words, with energy and with enthusiasm, driven by nothing except the renown of Christ and the good of the church. And then three, notice what he says. He says, shepherd the flock among you. And he puts forth, he addresses the heart for a third time. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I said this earlier, pastors are servants. We're not masters. We are servants. But under the ultimate authority of Christ and established in the authority of God's word, Peter reminds us that pastors have genuine spiritual authority in the church. The, the, the mere, now listen, the mere mention of authority causes us to cringe. I talk to people all the time. Don't want to hear about authority, especially in the church. There's a reason for that. And I believe first and foremost, it's because sin has perverted our understanding and exercise of authority as well as our submission to authority. But, but pastoral ministry, the, the spiritual authority that God gives in Christ and through his word to pastors in the church, it's God's design. So it's good and it's beautiful. We distort it because we're sinful. But it's God's design. And we, we know we can say that because it's patterned in the Trinity. It's enabled uh, through the gospel. And it's clearly prescribed in the scriptures in a variety of ways. Through commands. Through imagery. Just take the imagery in our text, shepherding. And through implications. In fact, the mere fact that Peter here has to warn pastors not to be domineering implies real authority, right? It implies real spiritual authority. See, real authority brings the real temptation to abuse that authority. And boy, how much have we heard about that in the church over the centuries, Real authority leads to the temptation to abuse that authority. And so Peter says, pastors, shepherd the flock not in a domineering way, but as examples to the flock. Examples of what? Examples of Christ's love, of Christ's sacrifice of Christ, not as a master, but as a servant. 
laying down his life for all those that God would save. Listen, to be sure, saying, saying hard things is not domineering. Sometimes pastors have to say hard things. Tom Wilkins, some point in time, is going to say something that's really hard to you, and you're going to think he's being domineering. Maybe he is. I doubt it, though. I know Tom. Calling someone to repentance and obedience, according to Scripture, is not domineering. Removing someone from ministry for a good reason is not domineering. Telling someone no. We're not going to run with that idea or ministry. That, that's not domineering. These are expressions of shepherding. They can be domineering if they're done with an arrogant forcefulness or an attitude of demanding because I'm the pastor and you're not. But when Christ is at the center, when the sufferings and the sake of Christ and the motivation to present the bride, when that, when that is at the heart of the pastor, then those things become sweet shepherding that serve the church. Listen, I think it's paramount uh, and I've just, I would, I would tell you most pastors don't want to come preach a text like this, and I'm one of them. <laughs> but when I do, it's always such a blessing. It's been a reminder for me this week. I'm a shepherd. That's what God calls me in this text. You know what the text doesn't say? He does not say, the text doesn't say I'm a rancher. You know the difference. A rancher raw hides cattle into the corrals, yipping and yelling and snapping the whip. Pastors aren't raw hiders. We're not ranchers. We're shepherds, lowly, undeserving, inadequate. Shepherds called to gently feed and care and protect and lead sheep toward the great shepherd. And we do that while pursuing the great shepherd ourselves. Just like you. You don't belong to us. Look back up at verse 2 again. Remember what Peter said in verse 2? Shepherd the flock of what? Shepherd the flock of God. That reminds me that pastoring is not about me. Pastoring is not for the pastor. It's not to the pastor. It's about Christ. It's for Christ. It's to Christ because you are Christ. <laughs> I love Acts 20, 28, where Paul 
writes to the elders in Ephesus, and he says to guard and protect the flock who have been obtained with the blood of Jesus. God entrusted them to you, but he purchased them with the blood of his precious son. Remember that, pastors in Ephesus. Remember that, pastors at Tucson Sovereign Grace. And as a pastor, our heart, our hearts must reflect that. It's not about me. It's about Christ. These people aren't mine. I'm not building something here. Tim isn't creating something here. No, the church belongs to God. He is the one who purchased them with the blood of his son. He is the one who empowers them and grows them. He is the one who is infinitely committed to them, not the pastor. But at the same time, pastor, you are the one that God has called. shepherd his flock. A pastor's charge, a pastor's heart, and finally, a pastor's motivation. Look at verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, oh, pause there. The chief shepherd will appear. <laughs> He's coming back. That's the implication of that, those words, that phrase. And when he, not if, <laughs> when. Jesus is, let that settle in. Let, let that cover up your struggles this week. What are you afraid of today? What are you suffering with today? Who, who, who do you need to have a different perspective about today? Where are you ready to give up today? Jesus is coming back. And when the chief shepherd appears, you, and you being the pastor here now, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'm not sure what receiving the unfading crown of glory will be like. It, it seems to be a special crown designated for pastors. I don't know if it'll be a, a literal crown or a flowery wreath. Will it be presented to the pastors publicly or privately? I, I, I don't know. All I know is that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, pastors will be presented with the crown of glory. I can only wonder, but the real wonder here is not what will this crown be like. The real wonder here is why would I receive this crown 
from the one I will receive this crown from. That's the wonder here. It's not about the crown. It's about the one who will give me the crown. He will be rewarding me. The chief shepherd will be rewarding your too often arrogant, selfish, self-centered, self-sufficient under-shepherds. That's amazing. To use a word Tim loves to use about when he refers to the gospel, that's scandalous. I have no business. Tom has no business. Tim has no business. Your pastor at your pastors at the church you went to before you came here, they have no business receiving a crown of glory from the king of glory. And yet, look at it. It's right there. As Jeff Perswell, the dean of the pastors, called used to say, it's right there. It's in print. God codified it. I can't explain it. But I can tell you the only reason it's possible. And it has nothing to do with your pastor's pastoring. It has to do with the crown that the great shepherd wore. It's a crown of thorns. Pressed into his skull while others mocked. Piercing the skin So that when he hung on a cross, his face was already bloodied. That's the real crown of glory. It's the only reason why we're here. And it's the only reason why God could look at your pastors and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Take this crown of glory and wear it for my glory. In this text, God shows us the charge of the pastor, the heart of the pastor, and the motivation of the pastor.